Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 20 years. I'm also a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach. I'm a strength coach. I'm a competitive powerlifter and Highland Games athlete. All right. That's us. Yeah, it's just me and Phil, everyone, today. Uh, Mike is traveling. I think he's doing a grip competition in Finland or something. Yeah, yep, he's over in Finland. I saw his little house, I think. They put up a picture of the house they're staying in. It looks nice. So. Yeah, he'll fit fit in over there. I mean, tall, <laughs> blonde, you know. Yep. Um, okay, we have um, three bits of news. We have one piece of mail, uh, and then... In the topic of the day, everyone, we're going to talk about uh, alternatives to heavy and when. Because oftentimes you hear, and I don't just mean accessory work, but oftentimes you will hear, you know, um, minimalist kinds of concepts or people train too heavy. uh, But they don't often or not always discuss when, you know, what is it appropriate, uh, that kind of thing. So, um, but I digress. Let's get to some of this news first. I'm going to start with what I guess you could consider an outrage piece. Um, I know I did this the other week, but this was given to me by a colleague from USA Today. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Athletes turning vegan to gain an edge. So, I don't know if the listeners are like this, but I'm like rolling my eyes immediately at this at the lead, right? I'm not saying that you can't yeah. go vegan at some point in your career. People know that that's kind of our opinion, I think, you know, but, mm-hmm. um, so let's see. It says here, uh, this is by Scott Gleason. It says, Alex Morgan remembers athletes sporting milk mustaches in ads when she was a kid, reinforcing the idea that she needed protein from animals and dairy products to be strong. Uh, And it goes on to say, I'm not going to read the whole thing, of course. Uh, Morgan's Orlando Pride teammate and her husband basically showed that they could thrive while eating vegan. Uh, And then it goes on to say that she became vegetarian August of 2017. Um, If anything, it makes me stronger and helps with fatigue and recovery, says Morgan. Well, I think this kind of portrays a fundamental ignorance, I think, about what a complete protein is. Usually, animal proteins are complete. And even of the complete proteins, right, there are some that are better than others. And whey is at the top of the heap. I mean, uh, in fact, just a plug to the National Strength Conditioning Association, but uh, in just a few weeks, I'm going to do an online seminar for them. And one of them is, how can you work around being a vegan Right, uh, with your protein sources and that kind of thing, if you want to make gains, but it's it's considered more of a workaround, right? Because plant proteins are usually incomplete, at least individually. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't put them all together and hope for the best and, and get some pretty good results. But to gain an edge over dairy proteins, that's absurd to me. 
I mean, there's very clear research out of Stu Phillips' lab from years ago that, for example, one study sticks in my mind that they give soy protein after workouts, and statistically, it wasn't better than zero. I mean, statistically not better than zero, that's a, that's pretty damning, right, yeah. compared to something like whey. Um, it does say uh, meats and plants, What what's really healthy, kale... Shanahan, a nutrition consultant for the Lakers, Yankees, and Packers, says plant-based meat is toxic. Mm. Now, I think I also my opinion is that this is too wrong. <laughs> like <laughs> plant-based, if it's made out of beets or peas or something, it's not toxic. Let's not overstate this. Yeah. The problem is, my, my wife was kind of listening to me bitch about this, is that a lot of these things are individual opinion, right? And that's a very weak form of evidence. You have to go and see what studies say. Um, Shanahan instead believes animal meat on the bone and animal bone broth can bolster digestive health and relieve joint pain. Uh, she's into the keto diet, it says, as well. So this other person that they're talking to, this Shanahan, um, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I slam some bone broth as a cheap bastard way to get my collagen really you know and i do think it probably helps my joints a little i've got some pretty wrecked joints these days so um but yeah but the whole the whole title right athletes turning vegan to gain an edge i just think that's incredibly misleading and like i said a lot of this stuff is based on personal opinion i strongly doubt that she's stronger or has better recovery because she's avoiding complete proteins, right, from whey and casein and stuff like that. So She's gaining an edge on the media. She's getting more playtime. <laughs> right. She's gaining an edge on. Right, so. exactly. She's gaining a marketing edge for herself yes. in social media. Yes. Anyway. Uh, and, you know, I'm not saying she doesn't believe that, right? There's a lot of people who are gurus, and they're not just financially driven. Sometimes they believe it. But, I mean, that's that's the B word, right? I'm always telling students in research classes, conclude, don't believe, if you can follow yeah. me there, right? So think about it and make a conclusion. Belief has its place in life. Of course it does. But not with things like this. Um, anyway. So I, I just, yeah, I felt like that was an attention grabber. So a little yeah. bit irritating to me because I think it spreads misinformation on both sides. Um, but again, you know, there are legitimate research-based sources like that. And I, maybe I'm sensitive because I just recorded that talk for the NSCA on this, right? The, and by the way, the short answer is you can, in fact, do this. I don't think I would do it from childhood, right? But mid-career, Phil, you and I, we've talked about this before. <laughs> mid-career, yep. you can switch and you can make do. As long as you eat a large variety. You know, you have um, grains in the morning, like your oatmeal and stuff in the morning, and then you have beans for lunch. As long as you mix it up throughout the day, uh, the plants that are miss individually missing certain amino acids, they're going to have each other's back. Um, the old concept of complementary proteins is a little archaic, though, as far as you got to eat, you know, beans and grains every meal together. And so if you are vegan, just really look for those better, higher protein sources like beans and legumes and nuts, you know, and eat a, the biggest variety you can throughout the day. But an edge, doubtful. Uh, I, I mean, c maybe an edge compared to a Big Mac and French fry diet, right? But that's that's an unfair comparison, probably. Um, this next one, Phil, you'll find this funny because you're, eat, you're eating up, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, body mass index may impact taste perception. I just thought this was funny. 
Professor Linnea Paul Green from the University of Iowa and her team just did a study of 290 adults, okay, and they were of different body mass indexes, indices. So 161 had a normal body mass, so basically in the low 20s, body mass index. Um, there were 78 in the overweight category, so that's basically a body mass index in the upper 20s. And then 51 were obese, and from a body mass index perspective, that's a BMI over 30. Um, for what it's worth, mine's still about 30, and I'm not even that big anymore. And I'm I bet sure yours is over that. 30. Yeah, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, I'll tell you what okay, it is okay. in a minute. Participants were given uh, samples of chocolate one at a time uh, until they chose to stop eating. Okay, so they're they're comparing these three weight groups, and they're basically saying, "Here's pieces of chocolate. You keep eating until you're full." Um, then they gave them a questionnaire, kind of as they did this. Uh, the average consumption was twelve point one pieces uh, before people said, "You know, I'm I'm done. Like, no more, please. That's, I'm I'm chocolated out, right?" Um, and their taste perception decreased with each piece. You might have heard that before, like when you eat ice cream. I mean, by the time you're on your like fifth bite of ice cream, your taste perception is actually kind of blunted, right? And it's not just because it's cold on your tongue. Uh, anyway, here's the thing. There weren't many differences with the simply overweight people, but the fully obese crowd, those uh, 51 people that had, had a BMI over 30, Obese participants had higher levels of initial taste perception. So according to the questionnaire, they were digging the chocolate more. Mm. Like They could actually taste more. It, it was more satisfying. It was better uh, than the people that were simply overweight or normal weight. Also, obese participants reported taste perceptions that declined more gradually. So in other words, instead of saying, oh, man, that's fantastic. It's a 10 on a 10 scale. And then by the fifth bite, they're like, oh, it's a 5. These guys might be saying, hey, it's still a nine. It's an eight. I'm still digging <laughs> this. You know, don't take it away yet. So yeah. it says obese women needed to eat 12.5 pieces of chocolate to fall to the same taste perception levels as non-obese women who ate only 10. Mm. So I don't know. It's interesting, right, that if your body mass index is really high, food is more enjoyable, basically, yeah. and the enjoyment lingers. I just think that's that's interesting. I'm on, the, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum right now. I'm hating food. <laughs> well, you're force feeding, right? I mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm beyond that. So, what is your body mass index? Uh, thirty-seven, and I'm looking to get Jesus, up to forty-four too. Oh yeah. my god! Yeah. So numbers <laughs> only over thirty, and you're obese. And of course, we've all bitched yeah. about paying, you know. Uh, high risk insurance and stuff like that. It's like, you know, this is intentional and you're you're not thinking about body composition at all. Like you're just ignoring the fact that most of this is muscle mass. Now not all of it, of course. Yeah. You know, but yep. anyway, yeah, I thought our listeners might be interested in that. But so it does beg the question, if your body mass index is artificially elevated for a relatively temporary period, like you, like you know, you drop mm -hmm. weight yeah. certain times of the year. Is yeah. food tasting better to you? Like you said, you're, because you're forcing the issue, maybe it's not. You know, So I don't know if that's going to apply to our listeners or not that have a high body mass index yeah. just because they're jacked. It has to. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, because I don't even – like yesterday during my third lunch, I was like, I'm done with this. I'm over <laughs> it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But I got to eat this damn burrito. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's bad. Another yeah. burrito. Yeah. You so, know – People, when I hear them brag, and I think our listeners heard me say this over the years, but when I hear them brag about how much they eat, and you know, you hear like, um, 
was it Phelps or one of these swimmers or certain bodybuilders say, I eat twelve to 15,000 calories a day, that's highly unlikely. I mean, yeah. I always joke, you'd have to eat with a snow shovel and, and sit on the toilet all day long. Like, it would just, you'd be nothing but a digestive machine. You know, now, don't get me wrong. If you're drinking the calories and you're doing it with really high fat, you know, Big Macs or something, you could probably do that. But if, if there's no way you're going to do that with a, uh, I don't, I'm not going to use the word clean diet, but, you know, a diet with variety and fruits and vegetables. And it's really, well, yeah. really hard to get that high. Yeah. To your point about the burritos, when I was in San Diego trying to gain weight, I was gaining almost, oh my God, I think I was gaining more than a pound a week. Yeah. Um, and to get to 4,500 calories a day consistently, I was eating things in half a dozens, right? Just to put this mm-hmm. in perspective. So 4,500 yeah. calories a day, I'd have six bowls of oatmeal, six cups of milk, and six pieces of toast. You know, for yeah. lunch, I'd have six burritos. I mean, crazy shit to get to that yeah. level of calories. If you're going to inc- also include some, you know, fruits and vegetables and beans and other stuff. Yeah, and the tough part, too, is like everybody that says, oh, I could eat that much. Okay, well, do it today. And then do it tomorrow. And it's not doing it one day. Anybody can do it for one day. <laughs> no doubt. It's when you're three months in and you're still doing it. Like every single day. One day is easy. Anybody can just overindulge for a day. Good I mean, look, it happens every Thanksgiving. But <laughs> have Thanksgiving every day. And, <laughs> and tell me how you feel about it. Oh, and dude. Make a t shirt. Thanksgiving yeah. every day. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, ugh, I'm just done. Totally. So, Saturday's my day, though, man. I don't have to wake up and eat because I can't. I can't eat like that before I train. So at least, like from from when I wake up to about one, I don't have to eat that much. Oh right. I, I go do my heavy squats and deadlifts, and sorry, that ain't working. Yeah. So, so you're enjoying that, like low. Yeah. Low intake. Oh, it's like my yeah. It's my. Break. <laughs> it's it's funny. Yeah, there's no doubt about the consistency. In fact, the reason that I partly that I was doing that when I was living out in San Diego. I mean, I, I was bodybuilding. I was trying to gain weight, but. Uh, I was in a behavior management class, and we had to do a behavior change project, and mine was to consistently eat 4,500 calories for 12 weeks. And I'm telling you, it sucked, you know? Yeah. And and I'm not pretending that's anywhere near what you or what Fortress used to do, you know? And it's really, it's not fun at some point. It sounds like a blast. And like you said, for a day, it's awesome. Yep. It's the consistency that wears on you. Uh, One more, and then we have a bit of mail. This just came out here. Um, oh, I guess it came out in July, so it's a couple of weeks old. High-protein diets for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, a systematic review. Now, the reason to bring this up is because a lot of longtime listeners know that we have an ad at the middle of the show, and it's about that big protein book. Phil's on the cover, you know, and I wrote the protein safety chapters, and I was debunking that protein hurts your kidneys if you're healthy. And this is whether or not protein harms your kidneys or your heart, even if you have diabetes. So people with type 2 diabetes are usually ones, especially if they also have hypertension, that dietitians will withhold uh, protein from because you can actually have more damage markers in your urine. Because your, your kidneys over time, if you have high blood pressure and diabetes, they, your kidneys are, are changed. I'm not going to talk a ton about the basement membrane and the glomerulus and all this kind of stuff, but your kidneys get kind of thickened and gummed up a little bit, so you don't want to overtax them. But that's not true of healthy people, and apparently, it's only true with combined conditions, like if you're hypertensive and diabetic, because this, let's look at diabetics, just let me me, uh, point this out to everybody who gets ripped on for, um, you know, oh, you meathead with your protein intake. Uh, Diet has the potential to be a powerful, cost-effective tool for treating type 2 diabetes. This includes 
high-protein diets that have shown promise. So they did a systematic search of the literature. They found clinical studies of high-protein diet patterns, and they simply defined high-protein as uh, greater than the typical diet in the U.S. So the typical U.S. diet is 16% of your calories from protein. So um, their average, I think, was 30% uh, protein intakes. They looked at 21 independent uh, articles, right, studies that met their criteria. And by the way, this is by Maleb and colleagues, M-A-L-A-E-B, Advances in Nutrition. The bottom line here, there were no consistent, beneficial, or detrimental or detrimental effects of high-protein diets on renal or cardiovascular outcomes. So again, this is even in diabetics that are at greater risk of having problems. No detrimental effects. Evidence was insufficient to recommend any one type of protein, either plant or animal, over the other. So that's very interesting stuff. Spanking new cutting-edge research that higher-protein diets, 30% of all your calories, that's that's a good whopping amount of protein. Not going to hurt your kidneys even if you have diabetes. So mm-hmm. Now, you might say, oh, Lonnie, that's confirmation bias. That's what you want to hear. But this is not the single exemplar, right? There's lots of papers like this. I, yeah, again, this comes back to, you know, I always lean towards the, the practical side because that's where I live. And us as practitioners have been doing that for a while. I, I can tell you a handful of people that I've helped, I guess you'd call it cure, type 2 diabetes, um, by doing exactly that. Yep. You know, let's go high protein, low carb. And guess what? Pretty soon they're off their meds. Yeah. <laughs> and their doctor's like, oh, how'd you do that? Well, so. Yeah. I got them off the high fructose corn syrup and the corn flakes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. Quit eating ho-hos and start eating more vegetables and meat. <laughs> yeah, totally. I agree. So. And you're right. Um, something on the order of like 85 or 90% of type 2 diabetics are over fat, right? Yeah. The two oh, go yeah. hand in hand. So telling them not to eat protein, which is the most metabolically boosting, highest satiety, you know, fullness inducing of all the macros, telling them not to eat that is really detrimental. I mean, it's yeah. kind of stupid. So, yeah. Okay. Here is one. I want your thoughts on this, Phil. I, I answered uh, this young man already. This is a former student of mine, Mitch, a young bodybuilder, um, now a trainer. He says, I've been listening to countless podcasts, Iron Radio included, and doing extensive research uh, and maybe more obsessed with our field of exercise science than even my days in grand old college. Uh, I try to learn something new every day. Of course, uh, come across several potentially controversial topics, um, and now I can't just storm into your office to ask, basically. Uh, obviously, I love exercise and all the many benefits it brings to the human body, but I understand there's been a study done where one population only diets, the other population diets and exercises. Uh, I also understand that caloric expenditure uh, is related to our basal metabolic rate, thermic effect of food, etc., mm. and that can basically BMR and thermic effect of food outweigh the calorie burning from exercise alone. So my question is, in weight loss clients, so not bodybuilders or powerlifters, but in just weight loss clients, is exercise really necessary if simple weight loss is the main goal? This is example with a morbidly obese client whose knees and ankles could potentially be in terrible shape uh, and maybe not be prepared for certain movements. Should exercise even be prescribed? 
I've always loved and valued your guys' advice. Uh, signed, Mitch. So, um, my two cents essentially was, it's true that exercise by itself, it's not even going to put a dent in that giant bagel you just ate, mm. right? I hate when the media makes exercise yeah. look like anti-eating. How long do you have to jog to get rid of that muffin? That is not the point of exercise. It's not why Phil opens his gym every day. He wants to get adaptations, right? Training results. Yeah. People change from the subcellular level all the way up. So you actually become a better fat-burning machine, right? More mitochondria, more muscle mass. Those are the reasons you exercise. It's not simply a calorie deficit-inducing thing. So even in only weight loss patients, I think exercise is critical. And I, I know he's referring to a study. I'm, I'm picturing the graphic in my mind. This was from, oh, man, like two decades ago where they had some people just diet, and they almost all rebounded in short order because the – the magnitude of change is great when you restrict diet, but the duration, right, the longevity of the results is poor. With exercise alone, the weight loss changes are more modest. They might only be a couple of pounds, but they're long-lived, right? So when you put these two things together, you get the dramatic magnitude of change from the diet, but then you get some of the sustainability from the exercise. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I was saying to him. Uh, but what are your thoughts about this, Phil? Like, yeah, I agree. Even with that morbidly obese patient that you know, might be dangerous, well, we're going to find something for them to do. So here in 50 pounds or 100 pounds, when they are able to exercise more, we've already set that habit in place of the exercise, even yeah. though it was doing simple things. But, you know, we want to get that habit in now. And, yeah, I mean, I've had some clients that are big, you know, 500 pounds plus, and there are a lot of things we just can't do. But... We do other things, and I try to make it fun, too. And that's that's a big part of it for me is making it – I try and make this stuff enjoyable for my clients. We find what they like because people tend to stick to it longer. And that's why people are like, well, what do you coach? Well, it's a, I coach what you want to do. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not looking to turn everybody into power lifters. That would be awesome if they did because I love the sport. But <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not blind in that some people just don't like it, and that's okay. So – yeah, I mean, I agree. And, I mean, you can't deny that our bodies are built to move, and they are happier when we do so. Oh, yeah. We, we release all kinds of endorphins and hormones and that just better us for losing weight. And, you know, I don't know. You don't want to be that 80-year-old man that falls down and breaks a hip because he's never moved. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yep. I mean, it's going to add to your health later on in life. There's more to health than just losing weight. Yeah, so. good point. Yeah, I would think that some of these guys, it's you're trying to avoid dysfunction, right? I yeah. mean, why are you trying to lose weight? Yes, cardiovascular health or longevity, but also people who are really just big, and I mean obese from body fat, they're much more dysfunctional, right? Like strength, range of motion, um, mm -hmm. endurance capacity. I mean, yeah, life is harder. <laughs> it's harder, yeah. and you have a much heavier load to move around. So, yeah, yeah. exercise just for the functionality, that, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just for being able to traverse this world. <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. What if he loses 100 pounds and wants to go climb a mountain? Well, he better have some exercise in. You know, right. Things well, like yeah. that. You're going to want – generally, people lose weight, and they become more active. It's generally what happens. Right, right. <clears throat> you know? No, that's a good point. We've, so. we've both seen people who um, they didn't have a high body mass index, right? They were in that desirable like 20 to 25 range, you know, lower mm -hmm. 20s on body mass index. 
but they looked at very flabby with no muscle yeah. mass. We've all seen that before. It looks like somebody that could walk up and you could plunge your finger up to your second knuckle into their thigh or even their yeah. arm. And they're not yeah. obese, but they're just their body composition is very poor. They have no muscle mass. No. Yeah. You know, no tone. Anyway. Yeah. And I mean this is the age of athletics kind of. We've moved away from We've moved away from that age of bodybuilding, this and that, and we are very much exercises in this age of what can you do. And it's kind of a neat thing. It's a neat place to be. And it, it'll never move away from looking good, too. But that's just that's not true. the sole goal right now with much of the exercise field. Right. It's, it's I want to look good and be able to perform well. <laughs> you know, Phil, it's kind of a neat, neat place. Was that you that said... <laughs> We've kind of moved into extremes where now people are either miserably unfit or very athletic. Oh, Does yeah. It, yep. Is that you? Yeah. And there's not yeah. many in the middle, it seems. No. Like. No. Yeah, we have – and a lot of our lifestyle now is what created that. Like like a lot of my higher-end athletes, they have jobs that aren't very strenuous. So they're able to train really hard. We have this abundance of readily available calories. They're able to eat really big. Yep. And and then they have a job that allows them to rest and recover. Mm-hmm. So, but those same things, the rest and recovery jobs and this abundance of calories is also what's making people morbidly obese. So it's just how you're implementing it. Oh, good call. So, yeah, as the underlying you know, mechanism, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't we're not out all out plowing fields all day anymore. Mm-hmm. But everybody's eating like they were, <laughs> you know? right? That's right. Especially here in the Midwest, you know that you grew up and well, Grandpa used to eat that, so that's what we got for breakfast. Yeah, but Grandpa pulled a freaking, you know, he was hugging, lugging wheelbarrows all day and crap like that. Yeah, digging so, ditches and yeah, yeah. And you're not. You're punching <laughs> little numbers on a keyboard, right? Yeah. You know, so no, it's a good point. It, it's and I know you said it before. It's a unique advantage for lifters that we're in this hyper calorie rest environment because if you do pull the trigger on even minimal training if this yeah. if the stimulus is sufficient that's all just recovery bro mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah so yeah. um so it's kind of a, a weird place to be in but the other thing related to the study that i just read was if it's true that even the high body mass index of our listeners um foods taste better that just that kind of feeds the fire even more. Like you said, there's excess calories being provided. Well, as you get bigger and your body mass gets over 30, maybe all that shit tastes even better. Yeah. You know, and it just encourages hyper intake and you end up with these, you know, 300 pound behemoths where that used to be very rare. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, look at the, look at the Brian Shaw's and half doors of the world. They would not be around without just abundance of calories. You can't. You just can't be that right big. on. You know, without totally. it, totes. It's, it's <laughs> impossible. So even the pro, pro bodybuilders now to be like two seventy and ripped. Holy crap! Oh right. You know. Yeah. You know, it's pharmaceuticals, takes, but yeah, the calories yes. un- underwrite all that yes. pharmaceutical mass. You still have to have, like we could give somebody all the pharmaceuticals in the world with without the calories, they're not going to look that impressive. Right. No, no so. doubt. If they ate like family dinners, like I did in the eighties, you know, like yeah. sit down and you have a small, a small piece of meat, some green vegetable, and a starch, that's yeah. that's not gonna three times a day, right? That's not gonna make a half door. No, you know, so it won't happen. So, okay, well, there's the news in the mail. Uh, let's go to break. 
Afterwards, Phil and I are going to talk about alternatives to heavy and when. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. <laughs> Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everyone, we're back. It's Phil and Lonnie, and we're going to talk about alternatives to heavy and when. Uh, as I pointed out earlier in the show, you often hear about minimalist training or accessory work, and I, I don't want that to be the focus. I mean, after our 535 episodes, <laughs> including today, mm-hmm. we've covered accessory work and all that other stuff, but what brought this to mind is that last week, I just did five sets uh, of like eight reps, I think, with 185 and two and a quarter. Now, that's that's not heavy even for me these days, right? I mean, I don't really go heavy. Often my joints won't have it, but I got so wrecked I could barely sit down, right? My, my adductors and my butt were so sore I could barely sit down. I'm like this maximal dynamic effort, right? Not maximal intensity like percentage of max, but just – Max dynamic speed work, what I would just call old school speed work, was very effective. Instead of putting 
what I used to do on the bar, right, which was heavy for me, like work up to a set of 405 for a handful of reps. I just did explosive light stuff and was ruined. But then I started thinking, well, what about like Strength Guild? What about Phil? Those guys can't only do this. Uh, And then what are the other alternatives? So let's just, let's start with that, Phil. Like maybe one or two alternatives to going heavy. And then when do you employ that? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, the speed work you talked about is a good one. Um, another one would be tempo work. We'll do that. Can you um, describe that? Where we we're going to control the tempo. So, like, I'll often prescribe like a four-one-zero tempo or something. So, four second, four second eccentric, one second pause, um, and then a fast uh, concentric. Okay. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. type of thing, or sometimes it's like a four-one-four. Um, things like that where we're just slowly moving through the the whole range of motion plus a pause on the bottom um and then our other thing would be more of a strength endurance type work so where we're doing you know strength work over time type of thing for uh you know it's not maximal effort it's not really dynamic it's just let's see how much work we can get in this amount of time just volume type of thing yeah just volume Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah for sure so just doing volume work those would be the three most often that, that we do and because um, the speed work one, I I kind of push. It, it doesn't come across sometimes. It's I don't, it's poorly accepted at times by people. But I try and push that like we're always doing speed work, no matter what. I want people going fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are times that there are times people don't get it. So yeah, we'll do just work on it. <sighs> Normally, young people, meaning young to training, or people like us that are getting older mm-hmm. the one thing we lose in time is our ability to go quickly so right and a lot of that a lot of that has to do with just aches and pains but uh i know in myself like i'm not near i've never been a fast lifter but i'm much slower than i was before i'm even more of a grinder than i've ever been hmm. interesting the what i was going to suggest was there's a i'm thinking of a classic figure in an old nsca uh book where it basically says if you don't train for acceleration and velocity it doesn't just come because you're grinding with heavy loads right yes and case in point there and i'm gonna withhold his name but there's an older track coach at the university uh just a hair younger than i am but when i was doing a lot of that caffeine work and we were basically jazzing people up on a couple packs of via and then doing speed work essentially right with 30 to 50 percent loads how fast can you move the bar he and I, even on the decaf day or the water day, right, where caffeine was not part of the picture, I think it would really disappoint a lot of the young football players. But because he and I always do speed work, like our whole careers, we were faster. You know, if you look at like the first two or 300 milliseconds of an of a explosive lift, we're outperforming these young guys. And I'm thinking, you guys need to do more speed work as part of your team training, right? Because yeah. the old guys are out exploding you like <laughs> not one rep max right but there's no, no doubt cuz you know he's um you know he's a field coach he, he, yeah. you know and and I still do speed work and I partly rely on that actually more than ever now because the heavy loads are just they're too hard on my blown out knee and my you know bad back and everything it sounds so old but it it was interesting that it really it was a real world example of that textbook graph right that the people who do speed work really do explode better out of the hole than people who just lift heavy. Yeah. So, 
Um, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you got to you got to train that to, or you do lose it. I mean, yeah. Now, the advantage I would think of that, and I don't want this to show on speed work, but I think the advantage is the more explosive you are, and it depends on where your strengths lie in, you know, in the power curve. I imagine, but like in the bench press, if you're really, really good with the lats and the pecs and the delts and you know the, the kind of course, and you explode really hard and you have weak triceps, arguably you could ride out that explosion for mm-hmm. the last yeah. quarter of the lift, yep. right? So stuff like that that I got to think is an advantage. And I, yeah. I like what you said about volume too because that's one of the things that I lack these days. I'm, I'm only in the gym probably two or three times a week. I know you only go like once. but yep. So that's that's why I was thinking I've got to do a minimum of like 25 to 40 reps for a body part. You know, I don't train yep. by movement. I still train like a bodybuilder, I guess. But So if, like if, it's, if it's back work... I've got to do at least 25 to 40, at least, you know, meaningful reps as far as volume. Otherwise, you don't just lose the speed. You lose your capacity for volume. Yes. You know. And that's one weird thing I have to face. Like with my hip, the thing I've realized over, it's been, what, four years and three months since my hip replacement. It was even today, I have so much volume each day that I can do. And it's not load dependent. <clears throat> it could be with 225 or 600. And it's just at a certain rep count, things just start hurting. So, oh. and that's where I'm a little bit different with my training. Due to that, I have to keep the intensity fairly high because I'm limited in the amount of volume I can do. So, there's only one way to attack that. I need to be either intense or very powerful. So, Interesting. it's either I'm, I'm either always moving really fast, trying to get the most bang for the buck as I can, or moving fairly heavy so but that's like i said i'm an odd case i'm not your average person so uh but yeah my other people i mean it's just depends on what they got and you know times to move away from it of course injury working with an injury or a movement pattern issue we slow things down um yeah movement pattern so yeah yeah, so we'll start doing tempo work or uh things like that when we're dealing with an injured person, just teaching them how to move, right? I go back to like when I first got my hip replacement. What did they do? They gave me a walker, even though I could walk without it. But uh, they gave me that crutch to, oh, it's time to learn to ro- walk right again. Because <laughs> I had done eight years of walking wrongly on a jacked up hip that hurt. So I adjusted my walking pattern. So right. um, I, I stuck with a walker for two months, even though I didn't need it to learn how to walk again. So we do the same thing with people that are have a movement pattern issue. We got to slow them down because if we're moving them fast, they're just going to revert to that wrong movement pattern. So we, we try and slow things down and move correctly and feel kind of mind on the muscle type of thing. That's good that you um, do that. Like as a coach, cause I think individuals tend, they don't want to do that. Like a guy came up to me at the gym the other day. He actually asked me to take my headphones off. Cause you know, I try to hide. <laughs> with, yeah, yeah. And, and he was really insistent, and he said, I just wanted to say, that's a squat. What you're doing is really, I think he's new, and I'm like, yeah. well, thanks. you know." But he's yeah. like, because I had worked up to two and a quarter or 275 or whatever he said, but my heels were coming up, and um, my buddy made me drop the weight way down, keep my heels down, a little bit lower mm-hmm. bar on the back, and, you know, and squat deep and properly with my heels down. And he said, but now it's actually starting to feel better. And I think this is exactly yeah. what you're saying, right? His motor pattern, he's, he was miseducating himself that if he yeah. thinks he could squat that, you know, 275 for reps when 
if your heels are coming up, Jesus, man, no, that's not okay. Yeah, you know? yeah, just stop that. It's okay to take a step back, slow things down, and we'll use the offseason. Even my athletes, it's that time that we're using to uh, attack things that are wrong, and that might be a form issue. That might be a muscular weakness issue, whatever it is, but generally we slow things down to figure that out. And let's say we're working on a 12-week cycle. Those first six weeks, we might be really thinking about what we're doing. Um, be it slowing them down or, you know, getting tight in certain areas, exploding in certain areas, whatever. And then those last six weeks is when we have to start. We need, okay, now we need to quit thinking and just do what we learned. You know, and, and by that 12th week, I can't have them thinking. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> because the lift really heavy, you just got to do it. Right. Um, yep. So, but I mean, to learn a, to learn a move, yeah, you can't be doing it at maximal speed. Because you're not, you don't know what you're doing. Right. Or <laughs> you wait, know? yeah, it's going to be a really fast, ugly thing. So, um, yeah, and then it's also just a good way. It's good on your uh, come after a meet, so injury or like right after a meet. Like generally, we're not muscularly beat up after a meet. Your your joints and tendons just everything hurts, mm-hmm. and it's from going. It's from being intense all the time. You know, those last three weeks, generally we're just hitting openers and stuff. So we're working that. We're working at 90% intensity all the time. And you're not going to get muscularly sore from that. You're going to get your joints and connective tissue is what's going to start beating you up. So it's a nice break. Uh, and also, you know, moving from heavy singles and doubles to fives and tens, it's just like we've talked about before. It's, 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 a, it's the change that you need to make progress again. You know, yeah, it, time to build the engine. Yeah, know. it could be the same move, but it's just that novel stimulus of oh, tens. Wow, that's hard. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah, it's time to build some connective tissue up again and things like that. People forget how how important tendons and things are. But you know, if you're pushing intensity all the time, they're not adapting. They're just getting beaten up, unlike a muscle. You know, so we got to give those tendons and things a break and. uh let them catch up to the rest of you. Hey, Phil, is so, it hard for your people to to do that? I mean, you're, you're asking a, a group of dragsters to run like NASCARs now, right? <laughs> it usually is until they get sore. They're like, wow, I'm so sore from that. The hardest thing is, is like like me right now, I've got an athlete that's fairly new with me. We're in like two and a half months in, and we are like almost spot on strength level. So it's great. I got somebody I can train with, and like we're within 20 pounds of each other on stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you can tell the difference is, is that I'll do a set of five. I'm not winded. Even if it's a hard, hard, hard set of five, I'm like, Ooh, you know, and he's, oh. so it's just getting that, it's getting that conditioning up yeah. to the point. And that's what people don't understand with powerlifting stuff is there is a demand there. Like you gotta be able to finish the training session. Background. Yeah. Background capacity, you know, aerobic capacity or, or there's uh, a, there's a certain base. amount of aerobic capacity needed. Yeah. To, okay. We're doing. 15 sets of heavy squats today. And if you're wiped by set six, you're in trouble. You're not going to get your whole workout in. We're not even up to our intensity yet, but you're already just tapped. Right. Because your work capacity is so low. So it's good to keeping our work capacity up and stuff like that in the off season um, and, and things like that. And like I said, the biggest thing I'm worried about is connective tissues and things like that. I don't want injuries. So yeah. what we found is to move away from injuries, we need times where we back off, slow things down. Um, and generally, you know, my athletes, 
like I said, they're 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 not okay with the huffing and puffing of it. Right when we move back to that, but they're usually pretty okay with the wow, I'm wrecked in soreness. That feels good, you know, because because for a while they're the only thing that hurt on me was my my knees and elbows and things like that. So it's a different kind of. Uh, muscular soreness feels good. Joint soreness doesn't. Right. It doesn't feel like an injury, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it doesn't feel dangerous. Yeah. Dangerous, right. I mean, bad. it is, it's micro trauma. Sure, under a microscope, I mean, muscle cells are really yeah. trash. But that's where I think bodybuilders and, and powerlifters are very different from the average person. You know, you hear, like, I'll, I'll see a, a commercial. Oh, take ibuprofen. They show this guy, like, his delt is a little sore from screwing in a light bulb mm. or something. And I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> But n- yeah. not only the, the poor capacity, but, like, yeah. it, it was so negative. Take an ibuprofen to get rid of that. It's like, no, I take ibuprofen because my joints hurt. Yes, I don't, exactly. You know, if I if I have delayed onset muscle soreness, I'm actually, it sounds masochist, I'm digging that. Yes, you know? exactly. It means growth. Yeah. So And, yeah, that's when we'll use the stuff. I mean, I'll use speed work mainly to, like I said, for older people or people that are very young to training because they just don't know how to move quickly under load. Um, yeah. Or we're, well, for the young people and for the older people, we're just trying to preserve that ability so <laughs> that we lose in time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the main reason I use that. And like you've talked about, you know, we're able to get the training stimulus without the joint beating up load. So that's another positive to it. But other than that, we're using speed all the time. Like when I go in there today, I'm going to work up to a hard set of three, but my whole work up that is going to be blowing it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why I had people come in. I had a couple of visitors from Oklahoma come last week, and they saw me do like a set of 405 as a warm-up, and my feet were coming off the ground. They're like, oh, so that's what you mean by fast. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, yes. You're trying to move very quickly. Yes. So um, so when I get to that 600 or whatever, uh, my feet ain't going to come off the ground because it's freaking heavy. Right. But I'm trying. I'm trying to move it fast. So no, I get it. I, uh, when I was um when I was doing the one eighty five and two and a quarter, my goal was to get the bar to leave my traps at the top of the movie, yes, right? Like yes. that explosive. Mm-hmm. No, yes. I know you're you're not doing that anymore four oh five, but yeah, I yeah. get the idea. Yeah, for for sure. And uh and then the tempo work and things like that, like I said, injuries, sometimes we'll use that. Um like okay, we're gonna move slow. If it hurts, you stop. You know, we're gonna start stopping where it starts to hurt, and we're gonna try and make that that area become larger let's say right now you squat down and we're able to make it three quarters of the way down oh pain starts okay come back up now ease back into another one we're going to grow that pain-free area over time and we're going to have the benefit of we're getting a lot of time under tension um yeah or or if it's a movement pattern you know okay you're squatting down okay feel your knees caving in stop that push them back out Right. And really feeling where you're moving. We need to take time. We need to slow things down so you can feel it. If you're moving quickly, we can't. So we're moving through that. Okay. And we're, we're cognitively learning this, this movement, movement pattern. So then when we go back to moving it fast, it's just, uh, instinct because we did a bunch of reps where you're just forcing that. Now you can just do it over time. You get, that's all you know. Just a circuit, like an embedded circuit. Right. Yeah. Um, now ingrained. you just know how to move that way because we slowed things down for you and simplified it and got your brain working to the point where now you don't need to think about it. Yeah. So, but I mean, as far as muscle growth goes, I really love tempo work. I mean, it's 
It's one thing to squat 405. It's another thing to squat 405 and do it slow. Oh, brutal. (laughs) Brutal. You'll just be wrecked. Yeah. Yeah. So It's a good point, too, because if we're talking about alternatives to heavy, uh, one of the things that's tempting to do with eccentric stuff, like you're talking about like a four count down with the tempo and all that, uh, it's tempting to put over your one rep max on the bar because you can lower more weight than you can drive up, of course. But, yeah. There's really something to be said for combining eccentric contractions with just volume. Like, you yes. can't do a ton oh, of yeah. volume. And, like, that's why I mentioned the 25 to 40 reps or so. <laughs> to me, that's that sweet spot where even if you're just using a moderate weight with a lot of that four count, you know, eccentric, yeah. uh, that causes it just causes a lot of, you know, micro trauma and yes, satellite does. cell activation and hypertrophy. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And then the other one I do, like I said, it's just volume. So, and the most of the time we do that on assistance work, but I mean, I'll do that on main moves too. Uh, but it's just, okay, we just need to get this in. You know, we just have a certain amount of work we need to do and we need to grow that amount of work over time. So, and there's that, you can't just grow that infinitely, of course. And that's where it's a neat thing. We add another two and a half pound plate to the bar, but <laughs> right. Yeah. Progressive resistance. <laughs> We can progressively add something because it's not going to help me. At a certain point, you know, okay, bro, you did 500 reps. That's awesome. That doesn't help us. Right, yes. So we need to, with the athletes I'm working with, you know, it's usually we need need some strength component. So Absolutely. uh, But, yeah, that would be the main ones. Injury, recovery, um, and uh, I don't even know what the first one. You know, just the, the times that. Like off season for my strength athletes is all about just building the the engine. That's yeah. what it's all about. Yeah. So Okay. But. Yeah. Well there you go, everybody. Just some thoughts on alternatives to heavy and when you would do it, because you're not gonna do it all the time. Like I can't imagine you doing tons of volume and conditioning work a month before a meet. No. You know? Yeah, no. Uh, stuff like that so. yeah and that's like where I'm at now. I mean, right now I'm doing a lot of workouts where I have I have a timer and I go 10 minutes and I just don't stop. But that's going to stop here and like that's going to stop when I get closer to me because that just doesn't relate to what I'm trying to do. And my energy needs to be spent on that once I get to that point. Right. You know, I'm five weeks out. Okay. 99% of my energy needs to be spent on you're about to squat 800. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's where it needs to be set. Specificity. So, yeah. But all this leads up to that, you know, all that goes into that. I mean, my people, we spend, when we're talking pure intensity, I would say 75% of our training cycle is spent at 80% or under. Wow. So that tells you how much time. I mean, we're not spending a whole lot of time at 90% plus. What, but what we're trying to consistently do is make that 80% bigger. Okay, so right, yes. That's really what we're trying to do. If I raise your 80%, I know the 100% is going with it. We don't need to test that, and it just does too much. It beats you up too much. So I think there's actually a lot greater amount of time under where you should be doing what we're talking about, speed work, volume, uh, right. tempo work, things like that. It's it's really a, a, a vast majority of your time. Right. It does make a lot of sense. Stuff like that. Right. I mean, if you can do eight reps – with what used to be like your opener, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then yeah. you by definition are much stronger. Or, or if you can come in and crush and move eighty percent really fast. Okay, whereas yeah. before it moved kind of slow. Well, I know you're making progress if you can move that 
correctly and quickly and explosively, dynamically, however you want to say it, we know we made progress. So before that used to be kind of a grinder. You know, right, yeah. Right. So, but. All right. Well, all right, everybody. Uh, next week, we've got a guest coming on. Uh, Nick Clayton from the NSCA is going to talk about some of the value of online versus in-person uh, seminars and whatnot and probably probably touch on the I put a post on our Facebook listeners page that Dr. Nelson and I are actually giving some talks in their the NSCA is having a virtual uh, trainers conference coming up here in just a couple of weeks you might want to keep your eyes out for that or do a Google search or something but um, but in, in any case so we've got some guests lining up but it was nice just to have a, a conversation with the founding co-host here and just shoot the shit a little Yep. And then we got who else we got? We got Jim McDonald coming up the week after that. And yeah. So I'm gonna try and line up a few more athletes. So. Good stuff. Okay. Well we'll see everybody All next right, time. Thanks a lot. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.